What an amazing thing to be objects of God's mercy and grace so that he has given us the sight of faith to sing such things as I surrender all. Our response is a result of who God is and what God has done, and we're so grateful to get to be, get to belong to him and be a part of what he's doing. And, that, and that's, a, that's a, a part of our theme for this morning. We're going to continue our study of Luke-Acts. So we're in Acts chapter 10, and if you got to start with us as a freshman in Luke, you'll probably uh, near, be nearing graduation by the time we finish Acts. So this is probably about a four-year journey, and we're three years in, so we'll see if I can finish Acts in the next year. Um, but what a privilege it is to uh, get to uh, study God's Word. It's a great privilege for me to get to be your servants for the sake of Christ, teaching through God's Word. Let's pray, and then we'll continue our study in Acts 10. God of all glory and grace, we marvel at your character and your goodness. Not just your infinite power, God, but indeed who you are. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for making us your own through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for placing us in the body. Thank you for giving us the privilege to serve alongside one another in this local church. Thank you that we are not the only ones who belong to you, but there are many people that you have made for yourself through faith in Jesus Christ who have gone before us and many no doubt that you are still making into your own possession. Thank you for the privilege that we get to be a part of that. We pray that the truth of your word will impact us today, challenge us to confess sin and to submit to your will for our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Last we left the apostle Peter, he was making the rounds in various towns and villages beyond Jerusalem these towns and villages that had begun hearing the gospel from the numerous other disciples who had scattered out by persecution, we learned in chapter 8, verses 1 and verse 4. In this itinerant ministry, Peter was preaching the gospel, and he was pastoring new believers, probably also supporting and guiding the disciples who had brought the gospel to these places. So we caught up to that in chapter 9, and at Lydda, he heals a man named Aeneas who had been paralyzed, and that healing led to people from the region listening intently and responding positively to the good news of perfect and permanent spiritual healing in Jesus, chapter 9, verse 35. Similarly, at Joppa, Peter raised Tabitha from the dead. Tabitha was a disciple who was active in ministry and charity. But the attention was drawn less to Tabitha and less to Peter and more to Jesus, and many believed in the Lord, verse 42. Now, that's where we left Peter last, and now the scene in, in the beginning of Acts 10 temporarily leaves Peter in Joppa to focus on another man 
in Caesarea. Read with me beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. That's a lot of Simon, so we have to keep him straight. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. We continue in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop, went on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made an inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Verse 23, so he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. 
Now, there's still a great deal of this to come, and we're going to have to save some of it for another time, because really this lesson runs all the way through chapter 11, verse 18. So for now, we're just going to cover these first 29 verses. But here's the point today. For the gospel to penetrate everywhere that Christ intended, the Jewish church, mostly Jewish up to this point, right, except for Philip witnessing to an Ethiopian eunuch, the church is, is Jewish. The Jewish church had to learn to identify and put away their prejudice. Prejudice was a barrier to gospel advance. Peter is central to this, this lesson that needs to be learned because of his standing and his influence within the Christian community. As the Lord showed Peter, God commands us to acknowledge and then set aside our prejudice in order to be instruments he uses to reach people for himself across cultural and ethnic barriers. But how and why will he do so? To be, me to be the messengers of the gospel that Jesus desires for us to be, we must learn to see ourselves and others as God sees we have to learn to see ourselves and other people the way that God sees us, and that is what I believe is the lesson of this part of this text. See, the problem of prejudice matters to the church because it matters to God, because it directly impacts the advancement of the gospel and whether or not we will carry out the discipleship mandate of Christ, and whether or not we will be a reflection of the community Christ intends for us to be. One thing that frustrates me nowadays is that it's genuinely difficult to have any kind of intelligent conversation to do with prejudice, because our culture has gone haywire about the issue of prejudice. And so you know, you've heard well about the social justice movement, and you know that, that, that in fact what it does is it confuses all of us. And it starts identifying people in a certain way, and everybody is either oppressed or, or the oppressors. And we can no longer even have an intelligent conversation about what God says justice actually is, or about the value of human beings created in the image of God. But I can tell you that the Bible actually does deal with our prejudice, as it does in this text. We do have prejudice, and in fact, if you think that you have no prejudice, you need to learn this lesson today. So just because our culture, the cultural milieu in which we find ourselves, is confused and in fact frustrating on this issue, we still need to use God's word as a mirror to learn to be the Christ followers that Jesus has called us to be. So that's where we're headed today, to be the messengers of the gospel that Jesus desires that we should be. We must learn to see ourselves and others as God sees. The first thing that we notice in this text about how God sees is that God sees people as individuals created in his image who need Jesus. Cornelius was a real person. Cornelius was a religious person. Better than merely religious, though, he worshiped Jehovah God. Cornelius needed Jesus to be right with God. He's an individual created in the image of God who even feared God and worshiped him as God, but needed faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus to be ultimately saved. Now, we don't know Cornelius as well as we have come to know Peter, 
And, and Cornelius is an important protagonist in this episode, which this episode is the longest narrative in all of Acts. So we know this is important to Luke, the author. So we need to take a few minutes here to look at this person, Cornelius. We find out that Cornelius is in Caesarea. And here's a map that you've seen already if you've been with us in previous weeks. This is uh, Peter's journey from Jerusalem to Lydda to Joppa and in our text today to Caesarea. At this time, Caesarea was the seat of the Roman government over Judea. Under Herod the Great had become an important and impressive harbor city. You notice that it's there bordering the Mediterranean Sea. But by now, tensions ran high between the regional Jews who were apparently, some Jews dwelt there, but they were now outnumbered by occupying Gentile inhabitants. Well, Cornelius would have been such a Gentile who was stationed there as a Roman centurion. He's a soldier over some 80 to 100 other soldiers. And we also learn in the text that he's part of a larger unit or a cohort of soldiers which would have numbered around 600 men. And this group actually has a name. It's the Italian cohort. But 10 cohorts would have made up the the terminology you're familiar with about uh, Roman soldiers. 10 of these cohorts of 600 soldiers would have been a legion. So that's 6,000 soldiers. Since there may have been as many as five such 600-men cohorts in Caesarea, again, this is identified as the Italian cohort. What's unique about Cornelius, though, is that he doesn't seem to have relationship problems with the Jews. Many of the Gentiles would have been in conflict with the Jews living in Caesarea, but not Cornelius. He's He's sympathetic to the Jews, and he's on good terms with them. We learn in verse 22 that he's well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Cornelius has evidently become a God-fearer, a devout man who feared God, the text says. And this probably means that he's a Gentile who worshiped Israel's God and probably associated some with the Jewish synagogue, but he stopped short of becoming a full proselyte. In order to become a full proselyte, he would have, it would have required that he go through some purification rites and especially would have required that he become circumcised. So he's a God-fearer. He worships Israel's God, Jehovah, the one true God, but he has not become uh, a Gentile converted completely to Judaism. But Cornelius' devotion to Jehovah God shows itself prominently here in three ways. He leads his entire household in the worship of God. Now, if you look back at a um, contextual history about this issue of Cornelius having a household, there is some debate about whether or not he would have had an actual family. I believe the text indicates that Peter must have had a spouse and family as well as servants who worked for him, that type of a household. It is possible, though, that soldiers weren't allowed to marry, and household really refers to all of those people closest to him who live with him and work for him and all of that still could have been, term, term, uh, the terminology could refer to that as a household. But again, I think he doesn't, it sounds like he does, in fact, have a family probably because he's been stationed so long in Caesarea. Now, so he, he leads his entire household in worship of God. He makes 
regular and generous practice of giving to the needs of the poor, which is an important, uh, would have been an important marker of Jewish practice as well. And thirdly, he's incredibly consistent in praying to God. Cornelius is devoted enough that it impacts his closest relationships. He's devoted enough to God that Old Testament instruction about almsgiving seems to flow from his heart. And he's devoted enough to be in regular dependent communication with God. That's prayer. In fact, it's quite possible that Cornelius was taking cues from his Jewish counterparts in their observation of prayer times at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Because he was praying at 3 p.m., the ninth hour, when he received this vision of an angelic messenger. So God sends one of his devoted messengers to Cornelius, who naturally responds in fear. But the message is that God has received his prayers, God has received his alms as a memorial or a fragrant offering. Maybe you recall from Proverbs 21.3 that to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So his almsgiving and his prayers are going up to God as an offering. This isn't to suggest that Cornelius somehow deserved God's favor, but that God recognized these things as an expression of faith and of sincerely seeking to please God. We have this odd combination here. Remember, Acts is this transition between, almost like John the Baptist is this transitional character who himself is an Old Testament prophet, but who also needs faith in Jesus Christ, who has come to inaugurate the new covenant, the new kingdom of God on earth. And so we have characters like John the Baptist. We have characters all throughout Acts. We have people like Cornelius, who he has faith in Jehovah God like an Old Testament believer. And yet because Christ has come, he needs to put his faith in the one God, man, savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And so God himself makes provision for that. He will believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit, his, him and his household. That is exactly what God is taking the initiative to make provision for. So Cornelius is instructed to send men to Joppa to get Simon Peter, who was staying with Simon the Tanner. The fact that the house is mentioned and that it's by the sea is undoubtedly an identifying marker so that they would know where in the city to begin asking for the house of such a Simon. And you, you heard a little bit later, that's how they succeed. They know where to go and begin asking for the house of Simon the Tanner so they can find Simon Peter. So Cornelius did exactly what he was told, and he got two of his servants, sending along with them a devout soldier to see this to see that, so that they'll see two take care of this really important errand. He can trust these three to do as he asks and to communicate faithfully the message given to him by the angel. I keep using those terms on purpose in connection to Peter's responsibility and our responsibility. God sends his messenger who will do exactly what he has asked. Cornelius sends his messengers who will do exactly what he has asked. Peter will be taught that he needs to be following through so that the church will learn to be following through to be the kind of messengers who will do exactly what God has asked. Again, when we take a step back from this and view it in the broader context of what takes place, we must see that all of this is happening because God takes the initiative concerning the fact that 
Cornelius is a God-fearing Gentile who needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he needed the beautiful feet of a witness who would come to him with the most important news for all people of every background. And in this section, the emphasis clearly then is on the fact that God moves toward Cornelius. So now we come to the part where something unique happens with Peter also to prepare him for the arrival of these uh, visitors to make sure that he responds by going with them. So we had Cornelius's vision up to verse 8, and now we have Peter having another vision. Peter, in this vision, evidently needed an object lesson on prejudice. So what are we seeing about what God sees that we also need to see? When we get to this lesson for Peter, we discover that God seeks to reveal our sin and to show himself and his purposes as the solution. Verse 9 tells us that Peter's vision takes place literally while the three trusted messengers are traveling from Caesarea to Joppa, and they're nearly there. It's a journey of at least 30 miles, which probably means that they would have left immediately that afternoon, sometime after 3 p.m., and journeyed, almost certainly on foot, continuing at least part of the night so that they could make it there around noon the next day or early afternoon. Meanwhile, Peter goes up on the housetop at noon to pray, which for Jews, noon would have been a normal mealtime, but not a normal prayer time. As you heard me say earlier, the prayer times would have been 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. So Peter's praying more than Jewish tradition. One more thing you should know is don't picture uh, kids especially, don't picture a Jewish rooftop like our rooftops, you, you know, sitting on top. I've been on rooftops plenty of times, um, but this would be a flat rooftop that's more like a room or, or a, um, a, a patio of some kind on the roof that served many purposes. And we also discover, as we're reading along, it's a mealtime. So Peter has gone to pray, but he's also hungry. But while he's waiting on the fruit, food prep preparation, remember he's on the roof. Food preparation is probably going on in the house. He's smelling it. <laughs> and he's getting, only growing more hungry. So while all of this is taking place, he experiences a vision from God. One thing I want you to notice that's contrary to some of the things that we find happening in our broader, quote, Christian culture of our day with things that are mingling Christianity with mysticism, I want you to notice that Peter doesn't try to do anything strange or mystical to try to conjure up this trance. It's initiated by God, not Peter. Peter's simply praying. But he does receive a vision. And something I want you to pay close attention to about the contrast or, or the similarity and contrast of Cornelius and Peter. We were talking about Cornelius, and now we're looking again at Peter. You should know Peter was a true follower of Jesus. But Peter wasn't a perfect follower Peter understood, he, Peter was a true follower of Jesus. Peter understood his sin against God and his inability to restore himself to God by any effort of his own. Peter understood that Jesus was an even better Messiah than the Jews thought they wanted. He understood that Jesus came to willingly suffer in order to deliver us from our sin and from ourselves by becoming the perfect atonement. 
Peter understood that the resurrection of Jesus meant that those who have faith in him would not die spiritually, but through faith in him can be forgiven and restored to God. Peter understood that one day, because of that resurrection, Jesus would return to judge the living and the dead. Peter understood that one day, those who, are, that those who belong to Jesus through faith will themselves receive resurrection bodies to live with God forever. Peter understood this well enough that he preached this same gospel, and Peter lived this message, walking in ongoing faith and dependence upon Jesus. That's why we find him praying at noon. But because Peter is, is following the example of Jesus, his Lord, in dependent prayer on God for the ministry task of apostolic leadership that God had given to him. Peter was a true follower of Jesus. But as much as Peter has grown and changed from the old Simon that Jesus first called, Peter still has much to learn and room to grow in Christ-likeness, like all of us. So God instructs Peter with an object lesson, and Peter pushes back until he understands God's command. The vision is, is something like a great sheet descending from heaven. And Bethany, I don't know if you did this on purpose when you were creating the backgrounds, but you know all those sheets. That's perfect for today. It's like this great, I picture a great white sheet coming down from heaven and being lowered by its four corners. And Peter's a fisherman, so I also picture this catching up these animals like a net. All these animals are caught up in this net. And Peter hears a voice telling him to rise and kill and eat, and he responds, by no means, or certainly not. We might say, may it never be, or absolutely not, no way. It's as though Peter views this as some kind of a test, because he's telling God no and saying that he has never eaten anything that the Levitical law would designate as worthless or unclean. The only reason he would respond this way is if the various mixture of animals caught up in this sheet contained some, some animals that would have been deemed clean and some unclean for Jewish consumption according to the instructions that have been given to Moses and Aaron for the Israelite people. You can find all of these details about which animals and birds and fish that they could eat in Leviticus chapter 11. I don't know if you've had the joy and privilege of reading through all of Leviticus to hear all of the instructions for the priests. Um, in fact, there's a really fun part of Exodus too that's about all the instruction of the temple and every detail that went into God's design and fine twine linen many times, if you read or listen to it in the ESV. And when you come to this You'll hear many details that God has very specific for the Jewish people because he needs them to know he is a holy God and he is very different from them. And so when they go into the tabernacle, the tent of meeting to approach God, they must be pure. And he gives them all kinds of, of rights and things that they have to follow to be able to approach a holy God. Well, within all of that context in Leviticus chapter 11, both for their health and also just to go along with the same thing, God tells them all sorts of things that they need to do to, be, to be, remain clean, and then also animals that they can or cannot eat. Here's the easiest example for me to show you, just so you get the idea. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 3, here are the kinds of animals they could eat or not eat. Whatever parts the hoof, you see deer footprints, you know, you're used to that. Okay, so deer footprints. 
whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. But it had to have both for it to be kosher. That's the word Jews use for food that is proper according to God's instruction. Either just one or the other made the animal unclean for consumption, such as I mentioned a deer, or a pig, which has a split hoof but does not chew the cud, or a camel chews the cud but does not have a divided hoof, so they couldn't eat that either. Both would be unsuitable, unclean, or worthless for food. These are just some among the many ceremonial laws that God gave to Israel for both, as I said, their health to avoid the spread of disease among them, and especially for them to take seriously being ceremonially unclean compared to God's perfect holiness and purity when having anything to do with approaching his presence at the tabernacle, the tent of meeting with God. But the illustration that Peter's receiving, the object lesson from God just focuses on this, this one issue of clean versus unclean animals for eating. So the second response from the voice, which is either God or his messenger, is essentially that God has made these animals, all of them, clean, so Peter should not call them defiled or impure. The whole thing happens three times. This is why I think it happens three times. To make sure that Peter has no doubt First of all, that this is from God. He's not just having a weird dream because he's smelling food, you know, or you eat broccoli, then have a bad dream. That's so three times to make sure this is indeed from God. And then also so Peter doesn't forget any of the details. Peter knows this is from God and it's very specific and intentional. Now, here's the point though. Not just that, yes, it is true that under the new covenant, God did remove many of the, the specific uh, customs and Levitical laws under which the Jews uh, needed to follow to try to understand having a proper relationship with God. Not because those things would save them, but God wanted them to see just how they might follow him rightly. But it's not mostly about the exterior, it's more about the interior, and so when we come to the new covenant, all of these things that God had, had he was still trying to show them that they had to have faith in him to, to actually have a relationship with him, but clearly they could not keep all of these things in order to be right with God. And so we come to the New Testament, we understand that the law actually just shows us our sin and reveals our need for Jesus Christ, right? But the lesson for Peter is less about the dietary restrictions, which have now been removed, evidently. The lesson for Peter we're going to discover is something beyond food. It's about people. So Peter needed this object lesson, not only because it revealed God's will, but to show him his prejudice so that he would put it away to follow Jesus. Put away your prejudice to be used more effectively by Jesus. I don't know if I have time to do this in my plan for the 35 minutes of this lesson, so if I go a little long, just pretend that you're enjoying this so much that you don't care what time it is. I believe that God positioned Peter specifically for this thing. My wife and I believe that God positioned us here in the U.S. for a church family like Branson Bible Church because God needs uh, people like us who've grown up in America, live in America, and this is, we're, we're, we're primarily monolingual, we're primarily monocultural, but I didn't grow up like that. 
I grew up with a different view of the world. I grew up with a different view of people. And I want to tell you something. When I was in high school, so I grew up among the Yanomamu tribe. And when I was in Brazil, I learned to speak Portuguese. When I was in Venezuela, I learned to speak Spanish. And in both of those places, I spoke Yanomamu. Some of my closest friends were Yanomamu. When I was in high school, I discovered something about my own heart. At just reading God's word, using it as a mirror, like I'm asking you to do this morning. I was prejudiced against these people that I loved so much. I didn't see them as, as, as good as me because of education, language, culture, whatever you want to say. I was ethnically prejudiced against these people. It's like I told you at the beginning, if we think we're not prejudiced, we most certainly are. We're egocentric. We're ethnocentric. I just want you to, to know that it's true that prejudice, our prejudice is shaped or it's informed by things like our culture. It's informed by, we see here, our religious practices. It's informed by our own comfort and our preference. Prejudice is informed by our lack of knowledge. It's incomplete and it's faulty. But all of those things ultimately find their source in this. This is why we're prejudiced, because of our sin. <laughs> we're self-centered. We're self-centered. So everybody of every race, culture, every background, we're egocentric and we're ethnocentric. I used to tease my Yanomamu friends that they called themselves the people. That's what Yanomamu means, the people. I'm like, well, there are a lot of people. Put away your prejudice to be used more effectively by Jesus. We have to see sin as sin. Use scripture as your mirror. For his glory, for his mission, and as a reflection of God's own character and purpose, Jesus wants you to admit and set aside ethnic prejudices so that he can use you more effectively for his kingdom. It is a barrier, so we must get beyond it. The only way for you to get beyond it, I'm telling you, this text shows you this morning, is to see people as God sees people, including yourself. The only solution for prejudice is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only solution for prejudice is to see people and his purposes as God himself sees them. And now, because of his position and influence, Peter was the ideal representative to learn this lesson for the sake of the whole church. Cornelius needed someone like Peter, a faithful believer who would obey the voice of God and communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ according to his command. The church needed it to be Peter. You're going to see this in chapter 11. So that we would all learn the lesson as well. We're going to come to that um, hopefully next week or maybe <laughs> a third week. We needed it to be Peter so that we would realize that prejudice is something we universally deal with and needs to be overcome for the sake of Christ's kingdom. So the church needed Peter's lesson on prejudice because prejudice is a hindrance to the gospel. There was a disconnect between the church's present thinking, the way they were witnessing, and what Jesus had taught them. 
One of the things I'm going to encourage you to do for homework is go to Mark chapter 7 and read verses 14 to 23. Compare what Jesus taught them to what you're learning here in Acts 10. So there was a disconnect for the Jewish church and what Jesus had actually taught them, Mark 7, 14 to 23. There was a disconnect between what Jesus modeled for them. And here's just one example. Here's your other homework. I want you to come up with as many places as you can think of where Jesus crossed the boundaries that would have been taboo for Jews. And let me tell you, once you get rolling, you will hardly be able to stop yourself. Here's just one example. Jesus went to the Samaritan woman at the well because he said, I have to. I must go. She was the least likely person for any religious person to be willing to be around because she was so unclean. What Jesus taught them, what he modeled, and what he commanded. What had Jesus commanded? You could go to to Matthew 28 and hear Jesus say, as you are going, make disciples of what? All ethnos, all ethnicities. But they weren't obeying it. And then we discovered that in Acts, they, they got scattered by persecution, and then they started obeying. <laughs> to some degree, Philip has at least already gotten on board, right? Peter isn't there yet. Peter was partway there. He was staying with Simon a tanner. You know what a tanner does, right? He deals with dead animal skins. So Peter was partway there, but not all the way there. Jesus taught us, Jesus modeled for us, and he commanded us to see people differently. Through Peter's obedience and the salvation of Cornelius' household, which comes, God showed the church how he desired for us to view and reach others. But that, of course, takes into account the complete picture of this narrative. And we're at the place where Peter has had this vision, understands what God expects him to to obey, but he doesn't yet fully comprehend what God intends by it. So how does Peter go from being perplexed about the vision to understanding its true meaning to then applying it? When we see others as God sees, we will obediently put aside our prejudices to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And now, I am going to skip to my conclusion and come back to that next week. So for today, we're being taught to see more clearly that In order for us to be the messengers of the gospel that Jesus desires for us to be, we must learn to see ourselves and others as God sees. First of all, you need to know by way of application this morning, when we see Jesus and ourselves as God sees, we will respond in humble faith. God's initiative toward Cornelius is extremely important to the author's message because his audience, the readers of Luke Acts, would have included many people like Cornelius. Do you remember, think back to the introduction to Luke, most excellent Theophilus, who was a Gentile? People like Cornelius. And then you go to Acts 1.1, Theophilus. Maybe you feel like you're different. Maybe you feel like you're an outsider to all of these religious good people. (laughs) If you will respond in saving faith to Jesus, or 
if you have done so, that means that God has moved you, God has moved toward you. God has set his saving grace on you, made you his child and an heir of his kingdom. In what greater realm of acceptance and love could you possibly choose to be made an insider? You feel like an outsider. God makes you an insider in the most important way possible, belonging to him through faith in Jesus Christ. And then I ask all of us this morning, who are we looking at to measure our worth and the worth of others? You know how prejudice works, right? I'm comparing other people to me. That's how most religion works, except for relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Religion works like a comparison. I hope I'll make it because I'm hoping that I'm better than most of the people that you're probably not going to take, God. Who are you looking at to measure your worth? Who are you looking at to measure the worth of other people? God's lesson in his command for Peter is extremely important to the author's message here. We're not to think that the gospel is exclusively for certain people, as if there is some measurement by which to gauge a person's merit. The only thing any of us brings to the equation is sin and a trajectory for destruction. But by God's own mercy and grace, the Lord Jesus brings the perfect obedience the sacrificial atonement, the resurrection life for forgiveness and restoration. He brings the gift of the Spirit. He brings the ongoing mediation on behalf of his people. There's no merit in being a Jew. There's no merit in being a non-Jew. There's no merit in being American. There's no merit in being European. There's no merit in being Caucasian or black or Hispanic or Asian, that's just a reflection that God loves variety and color. There's no merit in being highly educated. There's no merit in being highly religious. There's only the compassionate grace and mercy of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. To find compassion and motivation for life and for the mission Gaze upon none other than Christ himself. So your other homework is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. You will hear both the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will hear how we are to follow him in this kind of humble view of ourselves and others. We must be motivated by God's own passion and intention for redeeming a people for himself, bringing together responsive hearts from every ethnicity and language to make up the bride of Christ. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be embracing some brothers who look just like I looked on this earth, but I'm going to be embracing some brothers and sisters in Christ who didn't talk like me, who didn't look like me, but because of God's compassion and mercy through Jesus Christ, we'll be celebrating the goodness of God forever and ever. To him be the glory in Christ Jesus, both now and forever. Let's pray again as the praise team comes. God, we worship you because this is your plan. 
This is a reflection of your goodness. This is not something a bunch of men are trying to conjure up. No, this is a reflection of who you are, God. You created people in your image as a reflection of your own glory and goodness and your miraculous creativity, God, your, your endless creativity, your endless perfection to, to create down to the very minutia of how we function, God, and it is all for your own glory. We have desperately marred that image because of Adam's sin and our ongoing rebellion of you. We're wandering about thinking we've got this all together. We're wandering about selfishly focusing on us. And when we do have religion, we make it about us and we try to mold you into our image. We worship ourselves and we worship things created in human hands. But God, by your mercy, you gave us Jesus. May we worship him and look to him to see who you are and to see who we are and to see others through your eyes. We love you. Amen.